Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And tonight, I'm going to name this edition of Bring It On, On Point with William Hosea, so stay tuned with me tonight because there's a number of uh, national security issues, legal topics, and other issues of late related to former President Donald Trump and his supporters. And several of these involve his perceived and or alleged attempts to make America great again by undermining voting rights while trying to invoke military actions to usurp the Constitution in the recent presidential election. A laundry list of current discussion topics related to the big lie might read as follows. Continuing baseless legal challenges concerning the presidential election, which can lead to eroding the protection and preservation of democracy and our national security. Mounting evidence against Trump and the attempted coup prior to the election. Recent reports concerning General Milley and Mark Esper and their efforts to resist a possible coup attempt prior to the election. How could that scenario have played out? How close did we come to a successful coup? Where would we be if Republicans controlled the House and had not certified the election results? Would Trump legally still be president? And are we looking at that possibility if Republicans take over the House? And last but certainly not least, the ongoing legal battle to combat voter suppression laws. And that, that list could go on and on. That was just a short list. But fortunately, to help us navigate through this minefield, we've invited back our esteemed guests, USMC retired Major General Craig Timberlake and IU Constitutional Law Professor Joseph Hoffman. Gentlemen, welcome back to Bring It On. Glad to be here. I, I don't know if Thank you guys you. realize Great it. To be back. This is your fifth time on the show in about a year's time. Did you is realize that, a, that? Is that a record? That, that's a, that's two records. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm just going to get right to it. Um, going back to the laundry list that I read off, one of the things that really caught my attention, I'm sure yours as well, um, General Timberlake, and one, one of your recent visits, based on what we knew at the time, you said you didn't think that it would come down to the military standing in between being that last line between us and a coup attempt. But now we learn how dangerously close we actually came to that with uh, reports from uh, General Milley and some of his accounts of what actually took place. So my question is, if in his planning to prepare to defend the country against a coup, how would that have played out? What, what kind of plans do you make in a situation like that? Well, first off, it is good to be back. And uh, I didn't know that we had set a record for uh, most times, in this, but it is good to be record setting. Usually the records that I set aren't records that anybody <laughs> would want to set. There you uh, go. There you go. At that time. So <laughs> thank you very much. It's good to see you and the professor again. 
you know, I, I think when you when you say what what would the military, what would the advisor, because the first thing we got to do is remember, General Milley is the advisor. He's not really the commander of the military. So what he would do first off is advise and probably did advise, if especially if reports are to be believed, and I do believe that some of them at least have an element of truth to them, that he tells the president, hey, Mr. President, this is what I think you could do, and these are, are you should do, and these are things that you perhaps shouldn't do. And that's the advice he gives to him. He doesn't really say that we're going to tell the military to stand down or to stand up. He just says, hey, these are the things that I think we should do. These are the things I think you shouldn't do. And that's it. That is his role. So I, I think he's very well almost insulated by the fact that he is considered advisor and not a commander. He doesn't command military members. Right. He only advises the president of the United States. Now, I think it gets difficult for him in advising the president when he's advising very strongly to turn to the right and the then president or any president really wants to go to the left, then that becomes difficult. But I don't think in this case, he had to do anything but advise. Now, as far as the military, it would be up to the military chiefs, okay, to decide whether or not they were going to take, accept an order from the president of the United States and do something with that order. Now, they're obligated to follow orders, but they're not obligated to follow unlawful orders or immoral orders. They have a right to stand up. And that's where I think the military would have stood up in unison and said, no, there are certain things we don't do and lines we're not going to cross because of the oath that they took. And therefore, they would not have followed the president down the road that perhaps he wanted them to go, irrespective of the advice that General Milley had, give, General Milley had given to the president. And, you know, just listening to some of the reports uh, on on general things that General Milley said, it seems like he stepped out of his role as an advisor to the president because he was speaking to the secretary of defense and others about how to stop an attempted coup. So well, he, he would definitely be outside of his role as an advisor. Would you agree? Well, I think, first off, you could probably have a pretty healthy debate on how far he should go in his role as an advisor, okay? Because when does the advisor quit being the advisor and start being an agitator, if you will, or a proponent of one course of action over another? I, I think that's debatable. Uh, the things that I've read, it did suggest that General Milley constantly reminded everyone else of the role that they were supposed <laughs> to play. And, and for instance, he wants, so I've been told, and so I've read, told the president, wait a minute, I only advise, I'm not in charge. When the president said, hey, I want you to take charge of putting down the protests in the Washington, D.C. area, specifically the protests associated with the Black Lives Matter movement, then General Milley, again, the reports have said, came back and said, hey, wait a minute, would someone tell him I am the advisor? I am not in charge here. You're the commander in chief, as a matter of fact. General Milley made a comment like, hey, we have a room full of lawyers here. Can somebody convince him that I advise that he's the president, that he's in charge? And Professor Hoffman, there are obviously some constitutional issues that, that play into that, uh, that scenario. Yeah, for sure. Um, as, as we've discussed on, on past programs, um, you know, I mean, America faced a very serious challenge 
Um, this was a, a, one of those moments when uh, anyone who cares about the rule of law in this country had to be very worried and very concerned about what was going on in the days after the election and leading up to the uh, events of January 6th. Um, and I, I certainly was one of those people who were very, very, very concerned. Um, as we discussed in a prior program, the two institutions that I think um, General Timberlake and I both agreed were kind of our last line of defense of the rule of law and democracy in this country were the military, and that's what we've been talking about so far, and the other one was the courts and you know the, the judiciary. Those were the two last lines of defense if, if um, something like a true insurrection or a coup uh, began to look like it was going to unfold we would have to hope and pray that those two uh, institutions would hold the line for us. And I think General Timberlake on the, on the military side um, made the incredibly important point that, and I'm sure it wasn't just General Milley, I'm sure it was a number of people in positions of authority and power throughout the military chain of command. Um, we're talking about hypotheticals, you know, role-playing, uh, you know, whether it's preparing for war, whether it's preparing for other types of missions, you have to think it through. You can't just react in the moment. You have to have plans. You have to have things thought through. And I'm quite certain that our military leadership was talking amongst themselves as they do about anything. You know, it's my understanding that they, they, they once even did a, uh, you know, a hypothetical zombie invasion just to have the ability to kind of think outside the box and you know, what would you do in this hypothetical? So whether it was close or not close to occurring, I'm quite certain that our military leaders were well-prepared and had talked about a variety of possibilities and had talked about their constitutional role that they were supposed to play. And, I, and that, that gave me great comfort. I was confident all along that they were doing that. I think similar conversations were happening within the judiciary at the highest levels. And, um, you know, again, the, the judiciary behaved well. I mean, these, these, these litigations that were, you know, the lawsuits that were filed to try to overturn various aspects of elections in the states and in the, in, you know, and, and, and at the federal level. Uh, none of them went anywhere. The courts quickly dismissed them as they should have, and, and they did what they were supposed to do. Now, I will also mention one more piece in the puzzle, which is that even on the political side, we didn't quite get to that, you know, 11.59 p.m. moment when we're about to have a coup state officials, people who ran the elections in the states, very, very um, um, authoritatively defended what happened in their states. You know, the people in Georgia who ran the elections there, the people in Arizona, the people in Pennsylvania, they did their jobs. And they have now faced, in some cases, you know, threats of violence, threats of personal attack for doing their jobs. We can't we can't be um, complacent and think that, oh, that's gonna happen every time, right? There are, there, are, there are efforts underway, and I know you wanna talk about this tonight, there are efforts underway to undermine those very state officials who did their jobs this time around and did not knuckle under to the pressure. That's why the courts and the military ultimately did not have to intervene because the political system 
at the end of the day got to the right answer. And I include in that what Congress did on January 6th. You know, under immense pressure, Congress did its job and the vice president did his job. We can disagree or agree about all sorts of things that, that Mike Pence has done over the years, but on January 6th, he did his job. And that's why neither the military nor the courts had to intervene and stop a coup. Maybe next time they will, but I'm confident that they'll be ready for that as I think they were ready for it this time around. Okay, do me a favor and hold that thought mm-hmm. about the attempts to undermine uh, the government right now, because I want to go back to something you said about how the courts held. Um, and, and yes, they did. Uh, the lower courts held and then the Supreme Court held also. But here is what I find interesting, because it, it, to me, all roads in this whole mess lead back to voting rights. I had hoped that uh, Justice Roberts would be moved by the onslaught of voter suppression laws since uh, his court crippled the Voting Rights Act. But it, it seems like he is more intent on protecting voting results over voting rights, which is kind of backwards because without the rights, the results don't matter, ultimately. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a fairly accurate description. I think that, or to put it another way, to put it another way, I think that Chief Justice Roberts wants his court to be um, basically on the sidelines when it comes to voting rights, when it comes to election challenges, he wants his court and the courts that are below the Supreme Court in the federal hierarchy, he would prefer that they all be sitting on the sidelines. Now, when, when you get to that you know, 11th hour and the system itself is under attack, I was fairly confident that the court would be prepared to make the right call. And I think that and in that statement, I include virtually everyone on the court. I, I, this is not a matter of left, right, Democrat, Republican, or otherwise. This is about protecting the institutions of our government. Um, if necessary, the court, can, I think, would be prepared to intervene. But I completely agree with you that short of that necessity, short of that emergency, I think uh, Chief Justice Roberts's position, as was articulated in the voting rights case that the court decided a few years ago, um, I think their position is, you know, leave this to the political system until it gets to that final emergency when we might have to do something. And, and that might not be a, a comforting position given how much is going on right now that is really undermining the right to vote. Um, I think the Supreme Court is gonna stay on the sidelines. And that's unfortunate given what we're witnessing in so many states right now. I mean, the thing that's happening in Arizona, the thing that has happened in Georgia, what's happened in Texas, um, the next election is, is, is potentially going to be undermined by things that are happening now, four years earlier. And yeah, I do think the Supreme Court wants to be on the sidelines and maybe that's unfortunate for all of us. Um, General Timberlake, I, I take a little bit more of a cynical view myself, because in light of everything that has happened, uh, Donald Trump clearly does not want people of color to vote, and neither does the Republican Party as a whole. 
And if Justice Roberts does not do anything to counter those efforts, in fact, he enables them, then the only thought that I could have is he doesn't want people of color to vote either. Uh, uh, I mean, and Professor Hoffman, you might be right. Maybe he does want to uh, stay on the, have the court stay on the sidelines. But that's really the only way I can look at it. You know, I, I think maybe, and, and again, and I'm going to almost always defer to the professor on something like this. But I got to tell you, I, I believe that a part of just, again, looking at Justice Roberts and I guess background and kind of how he's got to be where he is, I think there's a bit of a legacy issue there also. I think he wants his court to be remembered as, as what is considered a fair court, a court that did step back and say, okay, let's allow this to properly brew. Let's let it get to where it needs to be before we step in, because once we step in, well, then we step in and there's no, where do you go after that? Once the Supreme Court steps in and makes a decision or, or renders a, a decision, then where do you go after that? So I, I believe that he's concerned about his legacy and the legacy of his court, not just him, and legacy of his court. I do also see your point um, that it seems that there is a determined, determined um, effort to deny access to voting rights, to, to what we already have, what's already been established that, okay, these are the rights that people have. And if, yeah, again, a, a determined effort to, to supplant or uh, disrupt or do away with those rights. And um, sometimes I, I think, yes, a lot of that's in the Republican party, but I think some of that's just uh, the apathy of the American people sometimes that people are allowing things to happen and they're simply not being engaged. They're not looking at what's going on. I look at the state that I am in and I am not a Texan. Okay. I am a transplant. I, I you know, there's an old saying that I'm not a Texan. I got as fast as I could. Well, I didn't, I resisted all efforts to come to Texas is just where I landed. <laughs> but I will tell you for a state that has proven like most states that no, that has not proven any great amount of voter fraud, then why would they expand, expend such an effort on voting rights, why? It, 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 it doesn't, it baffles your mind with the one exception. And that's, you have to come back to, they wanna disenfranchise a certain person or people from voting. Otherwise, why all of this effort? Why all of this effort? Uh, for instance, Texas, uh, okay, well, we don't wanna vote on Sunday anymore. Well, there's a reason that people vote on Sunday because their jobs don't afford them the opportunity to take off during the week. Everybody doesn't have a job that they can just phone in and say, hey, I'm gonna go vote today. Well, you can, but you won't get paid for that day. So their livelihood is threatened. So what do they do? They go vote on Sunday. And in addition, we know in certain communities, for instance, the African-American community, the black community, uh, pastors have a lot with getting out the vote. So people go to church and then they go from the church to the ballot. And every ballot box and everyone kind of knows that. So if I limit that time, then I'm essentially going to force those people to either go take a day off work and vote or not vote because they need to go to work that day. Professor yeah, Hoffman, I don't, I don't think I don't think there's any disagreement here about what we're seeing. The mm -hmm. suppression of voting rights, the racially motivated suppression of voting rights. Um, I, I don't think there's any doubt about what we're witnessing. The question is, how do you stop it? How do you change it? And, you know, both the states 
and the federal government have roles to play here. The states can set their own rules. That is basically how our constitution is designed, that states at the first level are the ones who determine the rules for voting, the rules for elections, and so forth. Any state that wants to expand access, if they want to go to a basic mail-in system like Colorado has largely done in recent years with no evidence of any problem whatsoever. And by the way, I will point out that countries all around the freaking world do it that way and let their people vote by mail and they don't have any problems either. And we're like the last country on earth where you got to go stand in the rain or the 110 degree heat on a sidewalk without water and vote, right? Why? I don't know. But states can fix that in a moment. They have complete control over that. And a lot of states have done a great job of expanding voter access. But then they're the ones that are exactly the opposite and are running the other direction as fast as they can. On top of that, the federal government can set overarching rules for federal elections by legislation. And of course, this is what has happened in Congress. There have been, been at least two major efforts, one largely driven by the Dem Democratic Party, you know, HR1 for the People Act. The other one, a, a more of a call it a compromise effort or a watered down bill that's come out of the efforts of Joe Manchin in West Virginia. Um, but the, the, both of those pieces of legislation could set ground rules that the states would not be free to deviate from or to, to lower um, access to, uh, you know, to, to, these, um, to the ballot box. So, you know, here you have state governments can fix the problem in a heartbeat. The federal government itself can do that. At what point do you want somebody else like the Supreme Court to jump in and basically say, we think the system is so broken that we're going to fix it by fiat. We nine people with robes, you know. We get in a lot of trouble in this country when we put all of our, our confidence basically in nine unelected people with robes. Sometimes they have to step up and do their job. And that's when it comes to, you know, that's when it's on their plate and they can't duck that responsibility. And, you know, the history of this country shows that sometimes the court gets that right when it, when it, when it falls in their lap and sometimes they do not get it right. Um, you know, we go from cases, you know, like Dred Scott or Korematsu, you know, the cases that go down in history as, as instances in which the Supreme Court let us all down. I don't know that I want to count on those nine people to save us. We need to fight in this country to win elections and get people in office who will pass legislation that will protect the ballot and protect the voting rights of all Americans. And we just haven't done a very good job of that in a lot of states. My own state, you know, Indiana being one of those. I mean, we're, we're not doing a great job here. I know Texas, where, uh, where General Timberlake is. Horrible. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, she, she figured this out four years ago and said, you know, we got to do some political groundwork. Any progress we make, if it's judicial progress, can be overturned by one or two people on that court. But political progress, that, that's where we can actually make a difference. And look what happened, you know, look what happened in Georgia in the, the last round of elections. And, you know, the, the, the fear is, the concern is with Republicans laying the foundation to routinely challenge 
in any election that they disagree with, they're laying the foundation to challenge and overturn it. And so, and, and they have that power at so many of the states. So Stacey Ab Abrams, on, in her best efforts, and no matter how many people she can get to follow her, um, that could be uh, just canceled out by, by yeah. Republicans in power. Georgia seems to be a state that's right on the edge, right? Um, politically, it's, it's, it's a purple state now, right? Yeah. And how that tips, today, 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 and how that tips is going to determine the outcome of those, those challenges. But again, I want the courts to be there when somebody starts playing fast and loose with the legal system to try to overturn an election. That's when I think the courts have, have no choice. They've got to be willing to step mm -hmm. up and do their job. You know, in advance, I think, I think the political solution has a more a greater likelihood of, of, of being long lasting and permanent. Yeah, I, and, I, and I agree. I, I mean, Texas isn't where it, it where it could be in my mind, but I do see glimmers of hope. I, I do see people rallying. I, I, I see, um, again, people willing to go out and fight for that right to vote and to ensure that there is a right to vote and more importantly, to fight for any oppression coming from the other side. Mm -hmm. So Texas isn't where it could be. Uh, I have hope and I know hope is not a course of action. I've been in the military too long. I, I know that hope is not a course of action. However, I do have hope that they will move a little bit more towards center. Okay. I'm not suggesting that they're going to go all the way left from an all, way, all the way right position, but I think we can get it back center. Let me, let me make one final point. I know, I know you want to move on, uh, but let me. Make no, one no, no, no. We, we can, we can stay one, here for a minute. What, one very last final point. Think about what we have now on the Supreme Court, thanks to the last four years of appointments. I don't think I want the Supreme Court to be the one who is going to determine whether people get to vote or not, whether elections, you know, results stand or not. I don't know that I trust them at this point to do that. I think you're not going to change the Supreme Court until you change the elections, you know, until you have politicians who will make the appointments and rebalance that court where it needs to be. Relying on the court to do the dirty work right now seems to me to be, um, you know, I, I don't see how that ends well, given who's on the court right now. I don't see how that ends well. Relying no, I, on the I, court I agree. The dirty I, I think, work. I think um, it, the only thing you can hope for with the court is time. I mean, it's time. These are life appointments, life appointments. I mean, they decide when they're going to step down. And so when you look at especially at some of the older, more conservative members of the court, they've been around forever. They only seem to be becoming more conservative, whatever that word means, each and every day. And the only time that's going to cure that, as my grandfather would say, is, hey, Craig, time, because everybody, that's the one thing that is finite here for each and every individual is time. And yep. so when time, time will change the court one way or the other, simply because we don't live forever. And, and, and these people change over time, too. There's plenty of examples of that in history. You know, I, I just want to make clear that, again, I trust the court on a very fundamental level to step up and do its job when they perceive a true emergency. That, that I take as a given. And I think they were ready, if necessary, this past uh, election. 
But when it comes to the sort of nuts and bolts, the day-to-day -day work of how elections are organized, how elections are run, who gets to vote, what the hours are, whether you can vote on Sundays, whether you can vote by mail, I don't think that's a job I want to leave to this court. I really don't. I think we need to fight in the trenches, as it were, to get the po political system to do what it's supposed to do and to make rules that are fair and reasonable for everyone. And for our listening audience, we are speaking with constitutional law professor Joseph Hoffman from Indiana University and retired Major General Craig Timberlake, uh, U.S. Marine Corps. Um, so there, there's a kind of a fine line, oh, um, not a fine line, but an overlap when you talk about people who are involved in these movements to uh, try and undermine or overthrow the government and some in the military. Uh, one prominent person, no longer, well, retired from the military, as you all know, is uh, Michael Flynn. And one thing I wondered about this guy, because he's still out there uh, doing the same thing, supporting Trump and uh, uh, trying to advance Trump's uh, movement. Given his radicalization and the insane remarks that he's made about Myanmar, martial law and others. General Timberlake, how is it that a three-star general can advance to that point in the military with those views and fly under the radar for so long? I mean, obviously he wasn't radicalized after he pinned on that third or maybe even the first star. And, and given what uh, has happened concerning uh, Michael Flynn, does he still draw a military pension? First off, yes, he does. Uh, he's still considered retired and uh, he does still, is, in, is still eligible and does, I'm pretty sure, receive his military pension. And if After, he has lost it, I've seen nothing to indicate that yeah. in, uh, in the public uh, arena there. I um, wondered about that because he's been convicted and pardoned. Well, but if you pardon, and I, again, I'm, I'm not the, the lawyer in the room here, but if you pardon, then that kind of wipes away the sin. If that wipes away the sin, then, then I back. should be getting back whatever I would have lost when I committed that sin is what I'm thinking. Now, the, I'll, I'll leave that for the professor to, to, to hit on that one. But what I will say is I agree with you that probably, probably General Flynn feels the way now that he has felt for quite some time. But the great thing about when you're on active duty, and we all know, you don't get a chance to espouse that view because you're not allowed really to espouse any view without running a file of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. One can't stand up and say, well, I'm a three-star general and I believe this, that, or whatever, because that's not what we do. It's not supported. It won't be tolerated. You just simply can't do that. So, you know, it's, it's actually just like it's illegal to campaign in uniform. It's illegal to insinuate that, hey, I'm Lieutenant uh, General Jones and I voted for this guy and I want everybody in my formations to vote for this guy or this girl. It's illegal to do those things. So that's how I believe that an individual could fly with um, some radical opinions under the radar simply because they're not allowed to express it. And so if they're not allowed to express it publicly, then there's a very small circle of people that truly know how that individual feels. And, and, and you know what, we want to make sure that, that it kind of stays like that. We want to make sure that your own personal feelings 
are your personal feelings. But if you go out and execute your duties, then that's what we expect of you to do. And that's what your oath of office calls you to do is to execute your duties, your personal feelings yeah. aside. So Professor Hoffman, uh, can you speak to how the pardon uh, impacts, well, the impact it, of pardon is after a conviction? Well, as a general matter, the general is absolutely right that a pardon um, essentially wipes out the, the consequences of that um, that criminal conviction. And of course, in this case, Flynn had pled guilty. Um, it, it, he was he was actually uh, convicted as a result of his own his own admissions. But the key thing here, as far as the pension, my understanding, and I'm not a military expert, so I'm on the other side of the coin here. Um, it's my understanding that um, your military pension, your military retirement benefits are at risk only if you are court-martialed or have your rank affected within the military system. In other words, the fact that someone who retires from the military then commits a crime in, in civilian life and gets convicted for that crime, no matter what it is, um, it's my understanding that that does not inherently have any impact on their entitlement to their military pension. And in this case, that's what happened with uh, Mr. Flynn is he was convicted as a civilian. He was never court-martialed. He was never subject to any military justice rules that could have brought his uh, pension into play. Does that sound right, General? I, I believe that's correct. Uh, you're most certainly correct. Uh, and, and, and in order for the military to affect that pension, uh, since he wasn't convicted while he was on active duty, they'd have to bring him back on active duty, which they could recall him because he receives a pension. That means you're eligible to be recalled. Uh, but they, they'd have to bring him back on active duty and then convict him of something then. Then he would lose his pension. But until they do that, he could actually be convicted of murder and, and, and go to prison and stay in prison and still draw his retirement. Wow. Well, uh, trust me, I, I will never find myself in that position. <laughs> well, I don't think you will at all. Um, so, so that's a high-ranking officer in the military, but there was a couple of uh, enlisted Marines, one in, in May of 18 that took part in the uh, violence in uh, Charlottesville. And then June of this year, another Marine uh, charged, well, actually both of these guys were charged with being members of Adam Waffen. The, uh, I think they're a white supremacist group, or militia or something like that. But the second guy, uh, I mean, this group vows to murder blacks and he wanted to bomb the DNC headquarters. And so what kind of uh, steps uh, General, do you think the military is taking now in light of uh, this most recent uh, revelation? Well, uh, again, I, I think irrespective of the steps the military takes, it must be American citizens that join the military don't give up all the protections. They don't give up every protection under the law. And I think we've got to be very careful. Uh, yes, we have these aberrants, if you will, but the average individuals are out there serving faithfully and honorably. And we gotta be very careful not to, uh, to deny them any rights that are, they are afforded under, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice or the constitution for that matter. So I don't think the military is doing too much more than they did before, except increasing the background checks. So the initial scrutiny when one goes into the military 
they are they are making sure that they're doing that and doing it right. But I don't think we've increased too much of what, what we're doing. Obviously, there are some things out there today that gives the military a window into the view or, or a window into the perspectives of a applicant like social media. So it's kind of easy. People trap themselves. They put a lot about themselves out on social media yeah. and you can go out and find those things on social media and, and recruiters, I suspect are screening those very strongly, but the reason they're using the social media is not necessarily because things have changed so bad. It's that social media has grown before there wasn't a social media. So you didn't have that as a tool. Now they have social media as a tool. They can enter and a, a name in a, in a chat box or whatever, and then they can find out lots of things about individuals, self-professed things about individuals, and then that leads them down a road um, to decide whether or not that individual is worthy of serving in a uniform. Yeah, that's that's uh, one good thing about social media. It's, it's a tool with broad applications. Very broad. Um, it's, it's tricky, though. I mean, the, the general said it exactly right. I mean, you know, when does it cross the line from having strong political views, which every American has a right to have, to uh, being a quote unquote radical or being radicalized. Um, that is a line that is extremely difficult to draw. And as, yeah. as a country, we have always been very nervous about letting the government be the one who draws that line between acceptable political advocacy and unacceptable radicalism or a threat or an insurrection. Um, I, I, I'm quite certain that the military uh, leaders are very, very much um, aware of that and, and are really struggling to try to try to, you know, stay on the right side of that line. You know, earlier this year, um, we talked about the fact that the government has no tool in place to uh, um, label these some of these organizations as terrorist groups. So I guess uh, based on that, uh, service members have somewhat of a free reign to join whatever group they want to. Well, I think, you know, there's an old saying, you know, your, your terrorist might be someone else's patriot. Yeah. And so I, I want to make sure the government personally isn't quick to label groups that they disagree with as terrorists because I might belong to a couple of those groups. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it, and it might, and it may be something as simple as the church that I go to the, uh, you know, American Methodist church or whatever, or it may be the fact that, you know, I paint my car green rather than white and everybody else in my neighborhood. So I, I, I want to be careful of, as a professor said earlier about having the government decide that I belong to a certain group based on whether or not that group is in favor with, the ruling political party yeah. or any other political party. And, 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 you know, let's be real. I mean, throughout American history, that doesn't usually end well either in the sense that it usually isn't the right wing, um, you know, extremists who are singled out by the government for mistreatment. Historically, it has been people of color. It has been people who in various other ways are not in positions of power. I often have to have this conversation with some of my students who get all energized about, hey, let's go get the government to do this. Let's go get the government to do that and mm -hmm. take out these groups. And I'm like, do you want the government to have that power? Look at American history. Look at all the famous First Amendment cases. Not the right-wingers. It's always people on the left who get nailed by the government. 
under those right. circumstances. Right. So, I, you know, we got to be aware of that and be careful about that. Well, Professor Hoffman, you mentioned uh, a couple of uh, decisions that were being made regarding uh, mask mandates and uh, after concerning the coronavirus. And, and some of those were military, so some of those are non-military. So I'd actually like to talk about that a little bit. Right. I'd be really interested to hear the general's view about this because it looks like we're very, very close now to decisions that would impose a mass mandate. Let me just say one thing about the legal framework first, and then we can get into the policy discussion. Um, a lot of people have asked, you know, why doesn't President Biden mandate masks? Why, why doesn't the federal government mandate masks? And the short answer to that is legally speaking, it's not clear that the federal government has that broad authority to mandate masks in general, let's say for, you know, for the American population. All our government, our, our, our system of federalism was created in a way that reserved many of the key governmental powers to the states. They never gave those powers to the federal government. And, and the key part here is the power to take action for the health, safety, and welfare of the American people. That is a power that was not generally given to our federal government. It is our states today, just as it was true over 200 years ago. It is the states who have the sovereign power to act for the health, safety, and welfare of their respective people. And that is why mask mandates and all other matters of public health basically has to go through state governments by and large. Now, the federal government can do certain things they, they, where the federal government has power. One of those is over federal employees, like the federal military or yeah. other, other federal agencies. The federal government can make rules for that because that's part of the federal government itself. The federal government can make rules about airplanes and wearing masks on airplanes, um, rules that have to do with other areas where the federal government has the sovereign power. But in, in very broad general terms, health, safety, and welfare is not a federal power. It is a state power. And that's why we're seeing federal government actions that are more advisory, that are more trying to communicate, the CDC, all that kind of stuff. Having said all of that, we now see movements in the federal government to impose vaccination mandates um, for certain federal agencies, and in particular for the military. And this is where I'd, I'd be interested to hear the general's view about where, where it looks like we're heading on that. And, you know, and, you know, and I got to tell you, I, I think the way we're, I believe the way we are, we are heading is the way that we ought to head, because I believe we're heading toward mandatory vaccinations. And the reason I say that is because, as a professor said, it, it wouldn't be the first time. And, and, and uh, William, you, you served 30 years in the, in the Marine Corps. There were times that the Marine Corps say, hey, line up, we're going to give you a shot. And you said, what are you giving me? Well, don't worry about it. And you kind of took the shot and you moved on. Anthrax comes to mind. Uh, there yeah, are a lot yeah. of shots that you were given. And because why? They were no longer experimental, first off. I think that's one of the keys. They were no longer experimental. But once they're no longer experimental, then the government says, hey, come on. You, we have a vested interest in you being able to perform your duties for us as the United States military. Therefore, we're going to give you the shots. And I remember several individuals saying, hey, I'm going to refuse. And those individuals that refused usually received non-judicial punishment. And they were put out of the military with a less than honorable discharge. So that could have been a general discharge, but it was less than honorable. I think right now we're moving toward a federal mandate 
for all the military members to receive. And I think it is long overdue personally. Um, that's on a personal side. Again, um, I'm fully vaccinated uh, and have been as soon as I could. I'm no longer wearing a uniform, I'm retired. But if I was on active duty, I would have a hard time not demanding because you can't until you're told you have the permissions to do that. But I would be definitely enforcing every chance that I could the opportunity for individuals to get vaccinated. And, you know, the military doesn't have to jump through all those hoops like state governors do and in, in trying to get people vaccinated. So what's going to happen at some point, people are going to be looking at the military and, hey, their rates of infection are just so, so low compared to ours. They must be doing something right. So the military can end up serving as an example where these vaccinations are concerned. You, you might have thought that we would already have enough data for people to get that message, but you know it, that doesn't seem to be the case. So maybe we need to get the military to send that message too. And you know, it's interesting, the political winds are turning on this to a certain extent. I think there are a lot of Republican governors who, you know, despite wanting to keep stirring the pot and getting people upset about all this stuff, they're now beginning to recognize that it's their own voters who are gonna die as a result of of these uh, anti-vaxxing positions that they've taken. And, and you see them starting to come around in a lot of yes. places and maybe not in Texas and maybe not in Florida yet, but at least <laughs> in a lot of other uh, red states, we're starting to see that move. Um, I do think it's, you know, we're, we're probably weeks away at this point from the vaccines, uh, the first ones anyway, becoming fully authorized uh, as opposed to emergency authorization. Um, it's an unsettled legal question. We don't quite know. We don't have case law that answers the question definitively of whether the mandate would be permissible even before that final authorization comes through. Um, the U.S. Civil Rights Division has said that uh, they believe that employers do have the ability, private employers can mandate vaccination even while it's still on, on an emergency basis. And that is, again, because the data is so clear that you know it, 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 it's kind of a joke to call these vaccines experimental at this point, given the data yeah. we've got. We've got you know, 160 million people in America who've been vaccinated and we know what the, what the track record is. Um, but in any event, we are probably just weeks away from that final approval for the first couple of vaccines. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, the military has often been a leader in this country in so many ways. Yes. Um, you know, civil rights. I mean, civil it was, rights, it was, sure. it, you know, it was the military that led uh, America to become a more, a more integrated uh, society. And, you know, on this one, too, I suspect the military is going to lead the way. And I, and I think, um, you know, and the military as, a, as an organi organization or institution is always uh, rated very well with the approval of the people. And so the people actually believe that, and, and even when you have some outliers and you may have a whatever general here or an admiral there or a person here or a person there, the military has always been um, well-recognized and well-received in the American public. So as long as that happens, I think too, that, yeah, that it will help if, if people see the military getting no, vaccinations in huge numbers, and they're already getting them already, of course, but even in bigger numbers, I think that'll help. Yeah, and you know, we, we talk about how part of the problem is that too many Americans don't think about, you know, helping others, that, it, that it's not just all about yourself and your own individual freedoms and liberties and so forth. And of course, the military gets that probably more than any other part of American society. It's a place where people care about each other. You know, um, there, there's 
one more question. I think I'm hoping we can uh, get all the way through it because we got about 10 minutes left. But can we all agree that our democracy is under attack? Yep. Because, you know, first by Donald Trump and his insurrection, you could probably go back a little further than that, but we'll, we'll start from there. Uh, different efforts to suppress votes, uh, Republicans laying the foundation to challenge and overturn results, the ongoing legal battle to combat voter suppression laws, and, and then armed militias, just to name a few. My question is, what would be the tipping point? At what point in all of this uh, would we no longer be considered a functional, well, a democracy? I won't qualify by saying functional. And, and I would really like for both of you to comment on that. You know, I, I got to say, um, the one thing that I think I understand about democracies, period, is it's messy. So even if you told me tomorrow there was a tipping point, I would tell you that it was so fluid that the next day the point may tip to the other side. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know that that we will get there. I pray, first off, that we never get there. Right. I pray that we never get there. And I think getting there is, is is a very long and uneven road, just like a lot of things in life. It's long, it's uneven, and you take two steps forward and you take three steps backwards, and you kind of do that. And every now and then you'll you'll clearly move ahead. And then then once you move ahead, then there's that uh, whiplash and people start trying to move it back the way it used to be. So I don't, I don't think we can go. Uh, I, I think we will remain a democracy. I don't believe, I don't fear that we're going to lose that position. You know, interesting, you say two steps forward, three, three steps back. I was looking at it in uh, terms of a trend line because, you know, the trend line uh, goes up down up down but the general direction can can be up or either down our trend line is i mean our line is trending down and in my opinion i think in certain areas you're correct and perhaps those are the areas right now that have your attention but i'd ask you to, to flash back 10 years ago and say did we have this issue no and then i'd say in 10 years will we still have it maybe maybe not maybe mm -hmm. maybe not and if you say that we've been trending that way I, I don't necessarily see it that way. I, I Again, I see the unevenness of yeah. democracy. And I, it could, I, go ahead, Professor Hoffman. Um, yeah, I, I know we're short on time, but I, 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 um, I agree with the general on this one. Um, I'm not yet a pessimist um, about the future of America or the future of democracy. I, I don't want to confuse partisanship, extreme partisanship, I mean, more extreme than I've ever seen in my life, with a, a real threat to democracy. It's okay for people to be partisan, and it's okay for people to disagree, and it's okay for people to disagree vehemently about what direction we ought to go as a country on any number of issues. That's okay. We've lived through those kinds of, of um, you know, partisan splits before. I don't think it's true that we have never experienced partisanship like this in American history. You go back through early American history, oh my God, some of the stuff that people like Jefferson and Adams did was just crazy stuff, you know, in terms of extreme partisanship and going after the other side and refusing to compromise and all of that kind of stuff. We can survive that. Underneath it all is respect for the system respect for democracy as a system of government, respect for the institutions of government, respect for law. 
that has to survive or we're in much deeper trouble than just disagreeing with each other about policies. And, you know, I don't think that there are more than, you know, I'll, I'll just throw a random number out there, 20, 30% of the American people today who really want to burn it all down, who, who, who say we can't trust the government, we can't trust the courts, we can't trust the legal system, let's just burn it all to the ground. You know, we saw those people at the Capitol on January 6th. They were ready to burn it down, all right? But that's a small, relatively small percentage of the American people. I don't want to use the term silent majority, but, you know, most Americans looked at that and saw it for what it was and wanted no part of it. When we, you ask the question, when do we cross the line? We cross the line when too many people give up on, on, the, on the system, when too many people are unwilling if necessary, to fight for the system. We can watch what happens in other countries again. You know, we've had, we've had emerging democracies that then, you know, it all went south and they lost what they had done. They lost their, their, their democracy. And it was because the people just wouldn't stand up and fight for it. And I don't see that we're in that kind of trouble because I think the good people of America, if necessary, would take to the streets. I really do. And, and as long as that remains true, as long as people would be willing to stand up for democracy and for the system, I think we'll be okay. Well, clearly just based on the last election uh, count, there are more people who would prefer to preserve the democracy than not. And uh, maybe and, it's- And to do so by election, by, by yeah, voting, yeah. you know, the turnout, that was a positive thing. That was a positive, positive thing. Well, who knows how it's going to, uh, what it's going to look like in 2024. Yeah. Um, one last question. And this concerns uh, our former fearless leader, AKA Donald Trump. There is <laughs> mounting evidence against him in, in a tip, attempted coup prior to the election. Uh, more and more of this is coming out. But what kind of evidence is necessary to charge and arrest him? Because at this point, he's still running around the country free as a bird, doing the exact same thing, just in a different manner than, he, that, than what he did on January the 6th. So what type of evidence could get him charged and arrested? You know, I, I'm definitely going to defer to the professor <laughs> on this, but I will say this. Um, when I look at whatever antics that we see coming from the former president of the United States, I only hope that people understand that there's a difference between being stupid and being criminal. And there's a lot of things that we do that are stupid in life, but they don't, they're not criminal. And so if we don't appreciate some of the things that he does, as long as it's stupid, but not criminal, <laughs> then I stand every day for his right to be stupid, <laughs> but not to visit his criminality, if that's a word, on people. Okay, so that, that, that's how I see it, because it, it's just like going back, and, and we've already plowed this ground, but I got to say, when people talk about, you know, what General Milley and, and his advice to, and everybody that was given advice to the president, we all can agree, or we all can disagree with what he does, like he alienated all of our allies, but that wasn't criminal. That was just stupid. So, and, but, but, so that's okay. 
for him to be stupid, just not criminal. I'm Professor, sorry. can you pa- can you pack your response into about a minute and a half or so? <laughs> sure, because um, we we've kind of talked about this one before. You know, in a perfect world, Donald Trump goes away. He fades away into meaninglessness. That's the perfect world. I'm not sure we're going to experience that world because obviously it's in his best interest, you know, to remain in the news. But you put him on national television in a trial and he becomes a martyr and you may empower him in ways that I don't think we want to. And we've talked about this before. You know, I, I, would, I would much rather see some Republicans decide that it's in their best interest not to let him be the candidate in 2024 because they want to be. I want self-interest to get us out of this. I want 10 other Republicans to try to stab him in the back, figuratively speaking, of course, um, to, try to, to try to become the Republican candidate in 2024. That would be a better world. And on that note, gentlemen, I know we joked about this possibly being a two-parter, but it doesn't sound too much like a joke now. So uh, don't be surprised if I call you up again and ask you to come back on another date. Um, Always a pleasure to be with the general. No, it's always, and I've said this before, and this is the fifth time, so I'll say it again. I learned so much, and I truly do appreciate it, and it's great seeing both of you all again. And we uh, definitely appreciate you two sharing your time with us. So on that note, we want to thank our esteemed guests, USMC retired Major General Craig Timberlake and IU Constitutional Law Professor Joseph Hoffman for joining us to discuss the legal topics and issues of late related to former President Donald Trump and his supporters. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we would love to hear what they are. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. If you have an event or happening that the African-American community should know about, please send that, direct, that info directly to the Bring It On staff. Our address is bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone, assistant producer is yours truly. Consultant and news department director is Cade Young. Our program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. The original theme music was created by Jamil Effian with additional background tracks by David Baker. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.